0: Thanks Artem, let me add my welcome to Rosie's, great to see you here, for those that don't know me, my name is Mark Jackson, I'm one of the ministers here, and a particular warm welcome if this is your first time with us, if you're a guest with us this bank holiday weekend, it is great to have you here. As Rosie said, we're starting a new sermon series today in the New Testament letter of 1 Peter, this is Peter the Apostle Peter, writing his first letter to Christians living in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And we're going to be spending eight weeks um, just focusing in on the first chapter. Uh, So many riches in here uh, for us. And it's a sermon series we've entitled "A Precious People, because as we go through this opening chapter over the next eight weeks, we will see just how precious every Christian believer is to God. How precious they are how valuable they are, blessed they are, safe and secure they are in God's hands. And how true this is, no matter the cultural and social pressures against Christianity or any of the trials and difficulties that we may face. Now, I think this is a hugely relevant uh, message for us. That's why we've chosen this letter, this particular chapter, and why we're going through just two verses at a time because it is increasingly difficult to be a follower of Jesus Christ in this country today. If you've been following the news, you may be aware of Richard Page, the magistrate who was sacked from the bench, removed from his NHS directorship role after he revealed his Christian beliefs on a television program. Felix Nogoli, a student who is expelled from his university social workers course after he posted some comments on his Facebook account in support of the traditional Christian view of marriage and sexuality. Street preacher, Yulawami Ilusami, he was arrested outside um, Southgate tube station earlier this year simply for speaking about Jesus Christ. Christy Higgs, a mum, was dismissed without notice from her pastoral assistant role at Farmer's School in Gloucestershire after she expressed some concerns she had from a, as, from a Christian point of view on her private Facebook account about the government's new religious and sex education guidance. Now, look, there are just four examples. There will be many more. A generation or so ago, that would have been unheard of for Christians to be treated in this way. And that's because a generation or so ago, Christianity was on the right side of moral and social orthodoxy in this country. But that is no longer the case. And that's why we're reading increasingly of Christians being sacked, dismissed, expelled, ostracized, arrested. And I'll be interested to know how you you guys are finding it, particularly those of you here who claim to follow Jesus Christ. It might be you're not experiencing it as severely as those examples I've just given. But no longer being invited out for your friend's get together because who wants someone there who stops drinking at two pints and remains sober whilst everyone else is getting lashed? And you're not just one of us anymore. Or the silent treatment, disappointment from a parent now that you have made the decision to follow Jesus Christ after all I've done for you. What a waste. How could you? Or perhaps just you feel it in the air, just the general sort of environment of this pressure for you to keep your faith in Jesus quiet, not to speak up about your beliefs, not to share them in the office discussion for fear of what people may think of you, for fear of what may happen to you. I'm sure all of us, wherever we're coming from today, will have noticed this increasing pressure against Christianity. Most of you will have felt it. What are we going to do about it? Well, look, the Apostle Peter writes this letter to Christians facing a very similar situation to us today. They are not facing outright physical persecution. They are not losing their homes. They are not losing their lives like in the book of Hebrews like many Christians around the world today but they are facing a social ostracism, a cultural pressure to keep quiet, verbal abuse, maligning, insulting. And Peter writes this letter to these Christians in Asian minor to encourage them to keep going with Jesus Christ, to embolden their faith. Just flick to the end of the letter, chapter 5, verse 12, where Peter tells us why he's writing this letter. This is page 1221. Chapter 5, verse 12, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So here is our rallying call for this sermon series for you individually as a Christian, for us as a church to stand fast as God's precious people, not to give up, not to keep quiet but to stand fast for Jesus Christ for the sake of this city and the glory of God's name. Now, how are we going to do it? Well, flick back to chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. And the first thing Peter wants his readers to be really clear about is who they are. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles. That's who they are. That's what they need to remember about themselves if they are going to stand fast for Jesus Christ. They need to understand what it means to be an exile. They need to understand what it means to be part of God's elect. And we need to understand it too. So let's take them one by one. First, exiles. First 1. To God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia now that word exile is not one we use much today and it literally translates from the Greek word as foreigner sojourner someone living in a foreign land that is how Peter describes Christians living in this world Christians are foreigners I read maths with European studies at university. That meant I got to spend my third year in southern Spain in the University of Granada, 30 minutes from the south coast, Costa Tropical, and 20 minutes from Sierra Nevada ski resort. I never knew there was a ski resort in southern Spain. If you timed it right, you could ski in the morning, and you could sunbathe in the afternoon. Um, so I'm told, of course, I didn't do that. But whilst I was there, um, for my nine months to one year, it was pretty obvious to everyone else that I was a foreigner, with my funny accent, as much as I was trying to give Spanish a go, with my pasty pale skin when they are all like really dark tanned, and the way I'd walk around in the middle of the day in 40-degree heat when they are all in the shade or trying to have a siesta. And it was obvious that I was a bit different, I was a bit strange, I did not fit in, I was not one of them, and they would look at me a little bit suspiciously at time. who is this guy and what's he doing? A foreigner. Christians, you are foreigners. You are foreigners in this world. The description comes up again in verse 17. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And in chapter 2, verse 11, if you just flick over the page there, you'll see Peter say, dear friends, I urge you, As foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Can I ask, is this how you view yourself if you call yourself a Christian here today? As a foreigner, as a stranger, as someone who doesn't fit in, even though this is God's world. Even though one day Jesus says the church will inherit the earth and a perfectly renewed world, nevertheless now, as we await the return of Jesus Christ, this is who we are. A bit different. A bit strange. Not one of them. Not ever really fitting in. And there being some suspicion about us. Not just that, Peter describes his Christian readers here in verse 1 as scattered, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, as I say, modern day Turkey. That word scattered, diaspora, is a technical term with a dark undertone to it, because it refers to when God's people were scattered in the Old Testament during the time of the exile under Assyria who took off the ten northern kingdoms in 722 BC BC, and the two southern kingdoms under Babylon in 587 BC. And this was a time when God's people were mocked, they were taunted, they were ill-treated, they were despised. And if you're familiar with Psalm 137 written at the time of the exile by the rivers of Babylon, we sat Down and wept. And again, this is some of the imagery that Peter is drawing on here to describe life now as an exile, a foreigner in this world. You don't have to turn to it now, but chapter 2, verse 20, these Christians were suffering for doing good. Chapter 3, verse 16. Malicious talk because of their Christian behavior. Chapter 4, verse 4, abuse being heaped on them for not joining in the drinking games, the partying, the reckless wild living. Chapter 4, verse 14, insults after insults simply for professing faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter says this is the norm, not the exception. This is the normal Christian experience as foreigners, as exiles in this world. I wonder, is that your expectation for the Christian life? If you're anything like me, you want to fit in, you want to be loved, you perhaps want a comfortable and easy life. But as long as we're foreigners, as long as we're exiles, that will not be the case, nor should we expect it to be the case. The norm is suspicion, it is mocking, it is never really fitting in. Now you say, Mark, I thought this was meant to be an encouraging letter. How is this meant to be an encouragement to us today? Well, look, let me come at this from a slightly different angle. Um, my wife, Jo, suffered a miscarriage um, after our f- her first child, um, Theo. Obviously a very painful and a difficult time uh, for us we'd had no problem um, getting pregnant with Theo, and I think I had sort of got these sort of wrong expectations and just thinking like, well, you try for a baby, you get pregnant, nine months, the baby turns up, and suddenly, obviously, it had not happened. And it had taken me by surprise, and it was a bit of a shock, and it wasn't what I expected, and I was even beginning to think, oh, golly, you know, should we try again if this is what's, you know, happened to us? Now, at the time, we chatted with some friends, spoke to the medical profession. They told us that one in three pregnancies on average, end in miscarriage. Did you know that? One in three. I was completely shocked at the time. How did I not know this? How come no one told us this before? One in three. Now, of course, as soon as you hear that statistic, it doesn't make the pain of losing a child any easier. Of course not. But I can tell you, it was an encouragement to know that this was not something we were experiencing alone encouragement to know this wasn't completely unexpected and it actually gave us comfort gave me confidence to not give up and to try again and as we did we did so with right expectations now this is the sort of thing that peter is doing here for his readers he is giving them right expectations for the christian life it's not going to make the pain of social ostracism, the pain of verbal persecution any less real. Of course not. But it can be an encouragement to know that this is not out the ordinary. This is not unexpected. This is not just for one in three Christians. This is meant to be for every Christian. And it can actually give us confidence not to give up because we realize it's normal, but we stand fast for Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for a Richard Page, a Felix Oliwali, a Christie, for their cases to be overturned. Of course not. Let's pray for them. doesn't mean we shouldn't pray as Christians for new laws, for religious freedoms in this country. Nor does it mean that we shouldn't stand on the legal rights that we have. But it does mean that we should not be shocked when we feel this cultural and this social pressure against Christianity, because we are foreigners. We are exiles. And no matter how much we try, Christians will never truly fit in. No matter how much we want the world to love the church, it will not. No matter how much we try and culturally connect our services to newcomers, as important as that is, there is always going to be something a little bit odd and strange about the way we worship Jesus Christ and pray to him, and sing to him, and that is fine, and we can't avoid it, and we shouldn't worry about it, but stand fast in our worship of him. Friends, do you realize you are exiles? Well, look, if that's the first thing that Peter wants his readers to understand about themselves, the second thing he wants them to see is that they are also Part of God's elect. So, with respect to the world, exiles, but with respect to God, the one person who matters, elect. To God's elect, exiles. What does that mean? Verse 2 It means that you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And sprinkled with his blood. Do you notice how little Peter says about himself? I'm Peter, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing with all the authority of Jesus Christ, you can trust what I say. He gets to his readers, and as if he can't help himself, as he starts describing how all three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are powerfully at work in their lives right now. Chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled by Jesus, God the Son. Clearly, this is something important for them to grasp. It's important for us to grasp too. So let's take them one by one. First, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So you may be exiles, you may be strangers in the world's eyes. But you are utterly precious in God's eyes. You are chosen by him. You belong to him. The world may reject you, God never rejects his elect. And you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What does that mean, foreknowledge? Just glance over to verse 20, where the same word, Greek word in its verbal form, is used in verse 20 of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was chosen, that's the foreknow, Jesus was foreknown before The creation of the world. This is a decision that God the Father makes before the creation of the world, irrespective of any future activity or future decision. In other words, to be chosen by God the Father according to his foreknowledge is to have God the Father set his immeasurable, unconditional love upon you even before the creation of the world. For him to be that for you, that committed to you. Even when you were completely unaware of it. Irrespective of any future decision you might make. I think I've mentioned before um, in a sermon how when I put my faith in Jesus Christ at university, I was completely unaware of all the people in the Christian Union who were praying for me to put my faith in Jesus Christ how when I did choose to read maths with European studies at university with that third year in Spain the first person in the history of the university I might add, I was completely unaware that two years later someone else would just happen to do that course she would be a Christian and she would tell me the good news about Jesus I was completely unaware aged one when I was seriously ill and the doctors had Said to my parents, I might not make it through the night. That my dad, with not a religious bone in his body, gets down on his knees to pray, Please heal my son, if for no other reason than to use him for your purposes. So much of what happens in our lives is due to events and circumstances we're not even aware of. And if you are someone here trusting in Jesus Christ, then you can go back before your own birth. Not just that, you can go back to before the creation of the world to an event where God the Father, the perfect Father, set his perfect love upon you to belong to him for all eternity. That is what it means to be chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And that means nothing can snatch you from his hand. Whatever the trials, the difficulties, the cultural, social pressures you are under, You don't think God has it in hand. You don't think he allows these specific things to happen to you unless you could handle it, unless he could give you the grace to cope with it. In two weeks' time, in verses 6 to 7, we'll see how even trials, difficulties are used by God to refine our faith, to prove the genuineness of it. Nothing is outside his control. Nothing is wasted by God in the life of the Christian believer even suffering If God chose you before the creation of the world do you think he is really going to let go of you now Of course he isn't Christian believers are chosen by God the Father but how do we know we're chosen sounds great how do we know it experientially today Let's move on to the second phrase. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That word sanctification is often used in the Bible to describe a person's ongoing transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it can also be used to describe the moment that someone becomes a Christian and puts their faith in Jesus Christ, and they are sanctified in the sense of being set apart from God. And that is the main use here. It is the Spirit's work in someone's life to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. And so we read in verse 11 of the Spirit of Christ Because the Spirit is always pointing people to Christ and in particular pointing them to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the sufferings of the Messiah, the glories that would follow. In verse 12, we hear about it's the Spirit who preaches the gospel to people. In verse 23, of how people are born again, that is become a Christian, through the living and enduring word of God. As the Holy Spirit takes that word about Jesus and about his death and resurrection and brings it alive in people's hearts. So how do you know if you're chosen by God the Father? Well, let me ask, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you trust in his death for your sins? Do you believe that he has risen from the dead? Do you believe that he is coming back for you? If you do, you can be absolutely sure that you are chosen by God before the creation of the world because the only way you can believe that is through the sanctifying work of the Spirit in your life. Do you know that? The only reason that you can believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the divine Son of God, the only way you can believe that Jesus has really done what he has said he has done is through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The only way you can believe that this is like no other book, but really is God the Father speaking to you, that prayer is real, it's not fake, it's not talking to the ceiling, it is relating to God. It is only through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You can only sense the conviction of sin and your desperate need for Jesus Christ and be moved to him only through the sanctifying work of Of the Spirit. Do you sense that? Do you believe these truths? Then you can be absolutely sure you are chosen by God before the creation of the world and you are absolutely secure in His hands. People can get in quite a muddle with the doctrine of election because if God's not chosen me, what do I do? God's not chosen me, there's nothing I can do, if there's nothing I can do, then I'm doomed, and what if God's not chosen that person or that person, there's nothing they can do, so they're doomed, and so we're like panicked, and we're worried, and we're like, ah, and we're frozen. That is, used the doctrine of election in a completely wrong way. The only time you read of election in the Bible is to give assurance to those who trust in Jesus Christ. Never for us to determine in advance who might be chosen or not. If you are using a doctrine of the Bible for the very opposite purpose that it was given instead of reassuring someone but undermining their assurance, you can be absolutely sure that you are using that doctrine incorrectly. God's Spirit can break into people's lives at any moment. Just because he hasn't yet doesn't mean he won't in the future. And it could be that for one or two here today, you are here precisely for that reason. The Spirit pointing you to Jesus Christ right now, to his death and resurrection, preaching the gospel to you, doing so from the living and enduring word of God. And what are you meant to do? Well, let's look at the third And final phrase here. To be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now at first reading, that can sound a little bit disgusting, right? Having someone's blood sort of sprinkled all over you. So what is going on here? And what does that mean? You may have noticed we chose in our Old Testament reading, Exodus 24. That is when God makes a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai the Old Covenant. And if you are being attentive in the reading, you'll have noticed there are two aspects to it. The obedience of the people, we will obey you, Lord, and then the sprinkling of the blood of the animal sacrifices over the people for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, unfortunately, as you read through the Old Testament, God's people can't change their hearts. They keep being disobedient to God because of their sin. And so they come under God's judgment And they go into exile, and they are unsure of their future. But Peter is using this language to say, look, remember now, in the person of Jesus Christ, there is a new covenant, an eternal covenant that can never be broken, made absolutely secure through the sprinkling of Jesus Christ's blood on the cross. In chapter 3 of this letter, there's a very famous verse that says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Christ has suffered on the cross once, for all time, once for all sin. The righteous, he's perfect, he's lived the perfect life, and he's done it for us, the unrighteous, the sinful, the disobedient, so that we can be brought to God. In other words, here is the promise of sins forgiven forever. Here is the promise of never needing to worry about being under the judgment of God. Here is a promise that you can be absolutely secure in your future relationship with God if you are obedient to Jesus Christ, which in this context means obedient to his call to repent and believe in him. I think one of the particular temptations we face right now as a church in this country, with the cultural pressures that we've been talking about, is that we do keep quiet about Jesus. We do keep our faith private. We're ashamed of him. We compromise our beliefs. We compromise our behaviors at times. And when we do, as we all do, because we're all struggling with this, we can feel really bad about it and guilty. And we feel we've let God down. And what does that mean for our relationship with him? But the good news about Jesus Christ, the wonderful news about being sprinkled with his blood, spiritually speaking, is that there is always forgiveness with Jesus Christ. There is always a fresh start with him. Which is why Peter finishes off his opening greetings here by saying, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace because anybody's relationship with God is completely undeserved because we're all sinners by nature. Peace because our relationship with God is absolutely guaranteed. No matter how much we continue to muck up, as long as we keep coming back to Jesus Christ and his forgiveness through the sprinkling of his blood. So as we draw these two verses together, as we get ready to serve Jesus afresh this week, can I encourage us all to remember who we are if we are trusting in Jesus Christ. With relationship to the world, we are exiles, we are foreigners, we are sojourners. Don't be surprised at the mocking, the insults not fitting in. It is not the exception, it is the norm. Don't be put off by it, stand fast in it. With respect to God, remember just how safe and secure you are in his hands. Chosen by him before the creation of the world, sanctified by his spirit, sprinkled by his son's blood. This is who we are. This is the true grace of God. This is what we're to stand fast in. Let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you very much for this first letter of the Apostle Peter. Such richness in each word and each phrase. And I pray, Father God, that you would help us to hear what you've said to us this afternoon, to grasp who we truly are as Christian believers, exiles with respect to the world, elect with respect to you. Please give us right expectations for the Christian life, not to be shocked or taken aback by the cultural, social pressures against the church, maybe against us personally. But help us to remember how safe and secure we are in your hands, chosen before the creation of the world, forgiveness always available through the blood of Jesus Christ. And please help each and every one of us in our own ways, our own particular ways this week, to stand fast for Jesus Christ. And we ask it for his namesake. Amen.